Welcome to Treasure Mountain, the podcast that inspires and guides people to find the treasure within human experience. Thanks for joining us for this episode. And if you've been enjoying Treasure Mountain, remember you can subscribe by getting a free podcasting app on your mobile device, like Podbean or Apple Podcasts. Once you've opened it up, type in Treasure Mountain in the search function and then click on the follow button. This will ensure that you get notified when each new episode is released. On this episode of Spirit Stories, our guest is Aya Santusika, the abbot of Karuna Buddhist Vihara in Northern California. Aya Santusika was born in Illinois in 1954 and grew up on a farm in Indiana. While being a single mother, she received a BS and MS degree in computer science. She worked as a software engineer and developer for 15 years in the San Francisco Bay Area. Her search for deeper meaning and ways to be of service led her to train as an interfaith minister in a four-year seminary program that culminated in a Master's of Divinity degree. She began travelling in Asia from 1999, learning from master teachers, particularly in Thailand. It was these experiences, along with time spent at Abayagiri Buddhist Monastery in California, that caused her faith to develop to the point of choosing to live and practice as a Theravadan nun. Aya Santusika entered monastic life as an Anagarika, an eight precept nun, in 2005. Then she ordained as a Samaneri, a ten precept nun, in 2010, and a bhikkhuni in 2012 at the Dharma Vijaya Buddhist Vihara in Los Angeles. She is trained in large and small communities of nuns, including Amaravati and Chittos monasteries of the Ajahn Shah tradition in England. So join us as we find out about the spiritual journey of Aya Santusika. Treasure Mountain Venerable, how are you this day? I'm doing quite well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing well as well. Um, look, when I was researching about you in preparation for this interview, I discovered that you've had so many different experiences and that there are so many parts to your life that I really need two or three hours to really do justice to your story. And my first question is, how did you manage to fit so much into one lifetime? You must feel tired. <laughs> I am absolutely tired, for sure. <laughs> Look, yes. uh, I think it's karmic, actually. Do you really? I do. I think that this lifetime for me is cleaning up a lot of karma. <laughs> well, I think you're doing a good job. Uh, you've made a lot of ground. Look, because we don't have uh, so much time to do justice to your whole story today, I thought we'd dip into parts of your life uh, that perhaps listeners can relate to. So to start off, I'd like to ask you a little bit about your early life. Now, I believe that you were raised in what was a fairly fundamentalist Christian family. How did that end up influencing your spiritual journey? 
Well, it is true that it was a pretty fundamentalist Christian environment all around us, not just my family, but the whole community, the whole area. And there were many churches in the small town that we lived near, but they all were about the same, except there was one Catholic church, which is supposed to be very different, but I uh, did something very naughty when I was a teenager, and I went to the Catholic Church with some of my friends. <laughs> I found out that they said the exact same things. <laughs> little, little bit of kneeling and a few statues, but other than that, uh, it was the same. Now, I want to clarify, and it is related to answering your question. It wasn't something naughty in regards to my parents, they wouldn't have thought it was anything wrong with that. And that was part of what really shaped my spiritual journey. My parents didn't really quite agree with the church. They, um, particularly, my mother was very adamant that she could not imagine people who are good going to hell, regardless of what they believe. So there were a lot of discussions after we would go to the Sunday services about what the minister said, um, about correct behavior. And I really, this, this wasn't just my parents. It was also my grandparents on both sides. So my family was really engaged in religion in a way that was had a had a deep investigation to it. And so I learned how to question and to search. So I feel like that really created the platform for me to look at other religions and ultimately find the answers to the questions that seemed to be unanswerable before that in Buddhism. That's a really interesting answer. Just before I go on, was the sense that it was a bit of rebellion, was the sense that in the community where you grew up, that there was this kind of divide almost between if you were Protestant or Catholic, was that was that the perception? Yes. yes. But at the same yeah. time, within your family, you there was a sense of um, not just tolerance, but almost like an open-mindedness. Um, I say this about my wife is from the Philippines, from a Catholic background, but I say that Filipinos are like, they're Catholics of the heart. They, they're not very ideological. Is that perhaps how your family was? I would say that was true, at least uh, in varying degrees, not with all family members, but certainly my mother, she recalled when she was young, living, you know, on a farm, um, in a farming area where there was one Catholic family and they were shunned. And the man of that family said to her father, my grandfather, don't we all have the same God? And it, it was clear that my, my mother's family felt differently. Mm. Um, and, and she certainly did. M my father family was a little more into the Calvinist uh, approach. Um, some of my aunties would say, pretty soon we're all going to be in hell. 
things like that. Well, yeah, right. <laughs> the name is written in the book of life or it's not. <laughs> it's all pretty dark. You know? It's pretty fatalistic too. Mm, very, yes. And and at the same time, my, my family, my father in particular, he had these ideas about how we should live much more in a much more austere way and a much um, less happy way. But that's not how we lived. And that's he would talk about how, yes, there shouldn't be music in church. There shouldn't be, um, you know, any kind of activity on Sunday, including using electricity. And, you know, but then we would do whatever, not not very moral, but, you know, go for ice cream at the Dairy Queen mm. on Sunday. It was a big deal. In yeah, that right, 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 right. Um, but my family enjoyed nature and really dedicated to each other's, you know, fam very family oriented and, and very upright and moral and questioning, not going, just going along with what they were told. Yeah, this is really interesting. And I think it really goes against perhaps what some people might have in terms of stereotypes about um, a more evangelical Christianity or fundamental Christianity is that there is that real uh, interest in in a lot of cases and orientation towards a spiritual life and morality as well. So it sounds to me like you got something good out of it. You you were able to draw the good out of that upbringing. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Have you had any? I mean, you've obviously taken a very different um, path in life. Have you managed to um, stay on good terms with your family? Because I ask this question because I know that you know it wouldn't you wouldn't be the only person in this situation. Many people who've uh, in the West who've uh, adopted a Buddhist path, uh, some of them have, have not been able to stay um, in touch with their family. How, how has it worked for you? Well, with my with my mother, it was great because she. Uh, I don't know if you probably know. My son became a monk in the Thai forest tradition when he was twenty four, and that's how I was I, uh, introduced to the Dhamma. And my mother, um, so dedicated to all of her grandchildren and, ch and her children, uh, wanted to visit my son. And she actually went to Thailand to witness his bhikkhu ordination. Her first time ever to go to Asia. Mm. I was supposed to go with her, but my daughter got in a major car accident five days before we were supposed to leave. There was no way I could go anywhere. And so... Uh, she went, and when she came back, she was glowing and could talk about nothing else but the Dhamma and the monks and the whole experience. And wow. she really, she really loved it. And then after that, every time I went to Thailand, she came with me for maybe another eight times. Wow, and that's amazing. At one point, she said, this is what I've been looking for all my life. Wow. <laughs> how, unex how unexpected. Yeah. <laughs> my father had already passed away, but sometimes my mother would say, you know, I think your dad would be, would, would be into this. I think he would get it. Um, but it didn't necessarily catch with the rest of my family. My, my brother, my only, other, my only sibling, my brother became more and more uh, fundamentalist as he got older. And he um, 
is part of the Southern Baptist community, and he really feels like I've gone the wrong way. Mm, and mm. and now that my mother has passed away, we don't have much contact. So yeah, it doesn't work all the time um, for family members. And I feel like he's a good person, and um, and so am I. And I have no doubts about what I'm doing. And I really have no doubts that Jesus would be totally okay with what I had <laughs> There was a point where I surrendered my life to God, and I feel like that's what got me where I am. Wow, that is so interesting. Yeah, okay. <laughs> that is a very different story. I really, I really like that. And actually, that leads me to my next question, because I think for a lot of people who maybe they come from a Christian background, from a theistic understanding, uh, and then they are drawn to Buddhism for for whatever reasons. And I have I know people here in my own community who are a little bit like this. It creates a bit of conflict moving from that theistic to a non-theistic understanding. Um, and I think a lot of listeners would be grappling with that. What was that journey like for you? How did you reconcile that? Well, I'll. I'll... I think this term I'm borrowing from technology field mostly is it, it was a real paradigm shift. It's like I had to really change the way I was thinking and the way I saw things. And I did it because I saw how good the monks were uh, in the Ajahn Chah group and how you know they were really living their faith, their religion. They were really living what the Buddha taught to the best of their ability, as far as I could see. And, and I was very impressed by that. And the things that they said make se- made sense. And, and that's what also got my mother interested. It really made sense with one's life experience. And also, some I had been meditating already, and I had for a long time. And I had various experiences that were described by the Buddha. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> that's what that was. <laughs> was like, yeah. And, but it really, it did take um, some deep searching to shift or to understand where that theistic concept, where that fits. And the way I, the way that unfolded for me was that I would listen to the Dhamma. Uh, the monks would talk about um, there not being an all-powerful, all-present, uh, all-knowing God. And that made sense to me too, because some of the questions around how can an all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful and all loving God kind of allowed this sangsara conditions to continue those kinds of questions. And, and when I, when I um, had these feelings like this incredible love for God and for other beings, I had to, I, what I did was I following the teachings of the Buddha really look at what I'm layering on that experience with my conceptual 
ideas and, you know, what if I just drop my preconceived notions or what I had been told before? What's left? What can I experience directly? And I started to realize that my concept of God and my concept of me were very related. I wanted to postulate that God is there with a plan for my life, no less. (laughs) Mm. And that made something solid that I could think of as myself. And so the willingness to drop all that comes from a very strong desire to know what's true, really true, regardless of what it's going to upset in terms of my, you know, structure of my perception of reality or what I believe in or what, what, what I think, who I think I am or anything else. So that determination to really just, really just see what's actually there and not add anything to it and then come to the conclusion that the Buddha was right, not because I was being told that, but because I could see that for myself. Wow. So it was that sense of that search for truth that helped you to cut through any clinging or uh, to, the, to previous ideas and so forth. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's, uh, that's important. Um, look, I'd like to skip ahead now and talk about the spiritual quest in Thailand. And uh, you mentioned previously that you went there maybe around about eight times or so. There was um, more, actually. My mom wow. came along about eight times. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite a few times. It's a, and it's a long trip from the United States. Um, listeners may be interested to know that you came into contact with the Thai forest tradition in a somewhat unconventional way, and that it was your son who became a bhikkhu. Um, could you tell us just a little bit about um, how that unfolded and um you know, how you went from going to just visit your son to coming to have faith and confidence in in uh, the Buddhism and the Thai forest tradition in particular? Well, my son and I both became serious about the spiritual path at the same time. And it was the result of my father's sudden death. My father was a farmer. He was very active, healthy. He was in a family that lived into their 90s or over 100. And we never would have thought he would just die one day at the age of 69. Those expectations, of course, make it a lot more shocking when something happens. And the result for my son and for me both, I was then 40 and he was 20 and I realized I didn't have any skills or understanding that could help me deal with this I really had no idea what happens when we die and my son uh, at that time was a jazz pianist getting his degree and jazz performance at the Berkeley School of Music in Boston. And and he stood at the graveside and he said, this is real and everything I'm doing in my life is not. 
<laughs> and so we both became uh, serious and started searching. And he almost immediately found Buddhism because of a of a course he was taking in college and he started meditating at the Cambridge Insight Meditation Group and just really from there started going to um, Korean centers, going doing retreats and various things. And it uh, so the two of us were talking regularly about what we were learning, what we were thinking, how it was going. And then when he decided he wanted to become a Buddhist monk, I was very interested in what that was going to look like. And there's quite a bit of stuff in between, but fast forward, when he got to Thailand, he finally said, I found it <laughs> <laughs> and I, I want to stay here. And of course, I was really interested in visiting him. And I showed up about six months later or so. And I spent a month at Wapanana Chat. And I was pretty deep into practicing um, in the yoga tradition and the interfaith uh, kind of center and really liking the kirtan and, you know, the. <laughs> Very, very kind of enthusiastic and still very theistic. And, um, and that first visit really exposed me to living by the five precepts, which, you know, takes a, a um, what do I want to say? It held at a higher level than ordinary, just kind of, Good morality, I felt, you know, like growing up on a farm, there's no real concept of there being something wrong with killing insects or animals, even though it felt horrible. I didn't, and I never wanted to do that, but it's like to really get clear. I love the way the Buddha is so clear about what is wholesome and what isn't. So that was all a, a very strong exposure to the fundamentals of the mm, Dhamma right. and living there, seeing it in action. But shortly before I left, I said, one thing I know for sure, I'm not a Buddhist. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny how that happens, isn't it? It's like you get these ideas of what you're going to do and it, uh, fate has other, other plans, it seems. <laughs> Um, you spent quite a bit of time in Thailand and you met with some of the revered masters of the forest tradition. I know we're skipping over this a little bit too lightly, but perhaps you'd like to mention some of the teachers that you met and what was one or two of the lasting impressions of your time staying in monasteries in Thailand? Hmm. Well, there were there were many wonderful, wonderful encounters and experiences of a lot um, to really show me the Dhamma. And um, actually, I'm not sure I like saying it that way. It's not personal at all, mm. but an opportunity to um, experience this Dhamma in a very profound way, and and. Ajahn Mahabua made a huge impression on me. Um, Ajahn Lian, Ajahn Blian, Ajahn Panyawato, 
Um, and it wasn't just their teaching or their presence, although those things were incredibly important, but there was also something at work internally that um, brought about major changes. And I, and mm. I, and Ajahn Dunn had a big uh, impact on my path as well. And, and, you know, the other people like Ajahn Pasano and Ajahn Jayasaro, who were more, who I was more engaged with um, on a regular basis were also super influential, influential for me. And, um, and, I, and I would say that I, I've come to get the feeling that this isn't something that these great masters or teachers do intentionally. I think it's just something that arises out of their intention to help people awaken and our intention to wake up. Because something will happen, and I think it's them. But if I talk to them, they're like, huh? <laughs> I don't <laughs> act like, uh, <laughs> you know, it's not, you know, it's a whole different thing on the, on the sort of material plane. But it's still something really happening and really, really life-altering. I hope that's enough detail. <laughs> <laughs> well, the question I asked was very general. Um, and the, I, I uh, was listening to an interview which was done by uh, the monks on the Clear Mountain Dharma YouTube channel. And I'm going to link to that um, in the description below this podcast. Uh, it's really worth taking a, a listen to. It gives uh, more detail about that time. But one of the stories that you told which I would love if you could elaborate upon it because I really love this story, was about not actually so much meeting a monk but a dream about a monk which you were waiting for, which was Ajahn Mahabua and uh, the story about the three boxes. Uh, could you share that particular story uh, with the listeners? Right. I was at Ajahn Mahabua's monastery hoping to meet him because of a previous dream that had happened that had a huge impact on me, where he encouraged me to practice relentlessly and that it is possible to awaken, possible for me to awaken, which I think is something that we all should take seriously. But then I was at his monastery and he wasn't there for some long period, a few weeks, I think it was, maybe two or three weeks. And while, while waiting, there was this discussion happening among the monks with Ajahn Paniwato about whether or not it's all right for Thai forest monks to eat breakfast. And the dream was Ajahn Mahabua pointing out these three boxes, you know, these ones, plastic boxes with the tight lids that have the clamps, you know, mm. and saying, and basically there was uh, a different meal plan uh, in each box. The first box had one meal. So uh, obviously that 
way of eating just one meal a day. The second one had two meals, breakfast and the meal in the midday. And the third one, three meals, like you would eat as a layperson. And my, my quest at that time, because I already really felt strongly that I wanted to practice the Dhamma as fully as possible, live it in every aspect of my life, and that I would uh, want to know how to do it. And, and I also had my family situation. My mother was alive. My, I was married at the time. And it would have been something I could do if I wanted to ordain as a nun. I would have to wait. I didn't want to um, leave them for their sake. And so I, this is what was in my mind, and the dream was Ajahn Mahabur showing me these three boxes and telling me that I could get enlightened regardless whichever one I chose. Excuse me. I really love that dream because, uh, I mean, it's hard to I, I, I'm, I'm wondering, I guess that must be the wisdom of your subconscious coming through the dream, unless perhaps, I don't know, maybe Ajahn Mahabur was <laughs> interceding somehow. But I feel like uh, that is somehow connected to the spirit of Buddhism. And often in Buddhism, we often get into these quite technical debates. And I think they're motivated by a good intention. You know, we want to do the best and uh, we, it's important for us to have really good sealer and so forth and uh, a good standard of practice. But at the same time, we sometimes lose track of the the bigger picture, which is that you know, this is the middle way, the gradual path, and there are, you know, there are options for practice, you know. Uh, so I kind of like that dream. So your, that dream said to you, there are options, you mean, which included that third option, you can take a lay path, but you didn't end up doing that. What was it that led you ultimately to decide to ordain? Well, I, like I said, I wanted to engage as fully as possible. In... But you were married and you had family and that's not easy in that circumstance, right? It's true. And I, I didn't, it wasn't my first marriage. It wasn't the father of my children, but it was a very good marriage and I didn't want to upset that. Hmm. So I thought, well, maybe I'll become a nun after my husband dies and after my mother dies. And then I threw in one more, when my unborn grandchildren are old enough to drive to come visit me. <laughs> well, so I've learned now that a lot of times uh, people with, uh, I'll say, the karma to ordain think in these terms much later, much later, and then <laughs> mm -hmm. it happens pretty fast. And so I was already sort of mentally really headed in that direction, but I wasn't going to do anything to make the conditions line up for that. 
And so other people did that for me. About six weeks later, my husband said, I don't want to be married anymore. Mm, wow. And I was totally shocked. Mm. And it was, there was a lot, many waves of emotion and um, it was an in incredibly um, valuable time for me to practice with observing that whole, that whole thing. <laughs> and uh, to acknowledge, recognize that, you know, from his side, he said he wanted to find someone else. And that was okay with me. Mm, I wanted him wow. to be happy. I really can say that of all the people I've loved in my life, I loved him with that kind of selfless, expansive love more than anyone um, I'd ever been with before. And I really did want him to be happy. And it didn't take a very long time for me to realize that I didn't want to try to have another relationship. I didn't mm. want to try to find another house and kind of reconstitute my life. At that point, I was between jobs. I didn't want to go find another job. Um, I wanted to live in a community of nuns and mm. um, really did dedicate my all to the, to the path. And I did it. It took time to do it in a way that was going to be uh, also still supportive of my mother and my daughter. My son was a monk. He was okay. But I wanted to also make sure that they were going to, they were going to be all right. And so it took long, a little longer that way. But it was. Yeah, it, it does sound almost though like perhaps, I don't know whether intentionally or not intentionally, but he was clearing the way. Like he wasn't just doing something selfish. It was almost as if he was like, I know where you need to be. I let, I let you do it. Well, I don't know. I'm not sure if that's true. That's the way it sounds. Yeah, he didn't seem to have that conscious awareness. Mm. Uh, he didn't say things like that. Okay. He seemed just almost. Out. He seemed almost like not quite sure. Just that he wanted to feel different in mm. in his relationship, and um, yeah, it was really interesting. And I, yeah, okay. I really feel like there was a karmic or. Um, mm. something else going on the devas planting seeds something was happening i think <laughs> yeah okay well all's well that ends well um i do want to go on now to talking about um taking higher ordination as a bhikkhuni and for the benefit of the listeners um there you know there has been a recent movement within buddhism to revive uh, the higher ordination for for nuns, and uh, there's been a lot of interest in it. But having said that, there is still not as many opportunities uh, for women to take the higher ordination. This, uh, so it's it's a challenge. Um, now, I just wanted to ask you about this. Um, I I get the impression you didn't take the higher ordination as a bikini because you're on a mission for to fight for equality. Um, 
what was it that drew you to endure the difficulties uh, to take high ordination? And, and how did that process play out for you? Unshakable faith in the Buddha. So wow. this is the form the Buddha gave. He set it up. He created it for bhikkhus and bhikkhunis because it was the, the most conducive structure within which to live and practice. And I realized that I needed to just bypass all the nonsense of the last thousand years that has come about in, you know, with people <laughs> and go back to what the Buddha did and what he said and, and, and to see how it works um, as it was given and follow that. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Well said. Um, and can I just ask, where did you end up ordaining? What was the circumstances in which you took uh, Upasampada, the higher ordination? It was in Los Angeles, um, thanks to Bhante Piananda, who's a very senior Sri Lankan monk, who actually started working on um, bringing about mo modern bhikkhuni ordination back in the 70s, started wow. with some of his colleagues. Uh, they were really the driving force, along with some of the Sri Lankan women who were working on, on, on that side of things, organizing women, getting them to be aware that this is possible. And so they had already ordained, started ordaining Sri Lankan women who had been nuns since 1996, um, that, that was the first ordination that really took hold with Ayakusama being the first modern bhikkhuni and there were 10 or 11, but they walked in order of age and the youngest uh, nun in that group was 24 years old and her name is Aya Sudarshana and she was my preceptor. Oh, she, wow. Okay. She's close, close, uh, co closely connected with Bhante Piananda. She lives in Florida, and Bhante Piananda regularly brings her out to California to make sure the ordination all goes right and well, and <laughs> the women's side of it is secure. And so she's a wonderful, humble person, and I am forever grateful. They, both were um, there to officiate over my, my novice ordination and then two years later, my bhikkhuni ordination. Wow, that's a really interesting story. And I didn't know um, all of that story, but one of the things that strikes me about it is like the international cooperation that has uh, been required and that has been brought about in this process. And one of the things I note about uh, the Bhikkhuni Sangha, which is uh, re-emerging, is that it is very diverse, very international, um, whether in the United States or in Asia or indeed here in Australia. Um, I did want to ask, though, um, if you could comment on your experience so far practising as a Bhikkhuni in the United States. You know, how has that been for you? Do you feel well supported? Um, 
yeah, well, what's your experience? Oh, I do feel well supported. Um, sometimes, just last week, someone was visiting here, and um, they when they saw one of the Bhikkhu monasteries, they said, "I just can't quite let go of the discrepancy <laughs> between what the Bhikkhus." <laughs> have and what the bhikkhus have and it's like no don't even think about that <laughs> it's like mm. we are we are well supported we have a little piece of property we have um, a place to live we have robes we have never gone without food um, people want to support this they are they are caring and um and it, it and it is true that there's an element of people who really kind of want to fight for equality, but that that is not our um, approach at all. And because of the, you know, our approach is we do this be out of faith in the Buddha. And so we tend, we tend to, hmm, I was going to say attract, that's not quite right. People who tend to have that same feeling are the ones who come usually. Um, and and it's been um, there. We've gradually grown in the early days. It was really touch and go as to whether we could make the rent for the house that we were renting. And um, and now we don't have to worry about that. And we've got donations to build more cooties. So, you know, kind of we're growing about as fast as we can manage, <laughs> I think. And it's fine. And I, I will say that there is, you know, this idea uh, among people in Thailand, particularly, but in other places too, like eight precepts is enough. You don't need to be a bhikkhuni. Why would one, one bhikkhu said, why would you want to become a bhikkhuni? I wouldn't want to be a bhikkhuni, but then why does he want to be a bhikkhu? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> It's an odd thing to say. Yeah. And, Coming from a bhikkhu. Yeah, exactly. And and I I was in white robes for five years, which is the eight precept form that is prevalent in Thailand. And in Thailand, people know what that is, but in the United States, they do not. They don't know if you're, um, well, I won't even go into the possible things they might <laughs> think you're doing um but it's not actually understood but bhikkhuni ordination is they can recognize us as buddhist monastics and have a sense of what that means and um and what we can offer them in support of their practice so it really doesn't make sense to do anything else in america that's really interesting. So it's almost if you're saying that in the cultural context of the United States, uh, it's almost like a fresh start. There isn't mm -hmm. the preconceptions. Mm -hmm. um, but perhaps um, for all the benefits of people maybe in the United States or other parts of the West, it is worth restating that um, this, you know, the, the Bhikkhuni uh, Sangha is it, what we have now is a revival. It's, uh, and I think it's really important to support our bikinis mm. and i say that i want to say that um, as a as a man in this life at least we don't know what we're going to be in the next one uh <laughs> but as a man i would say as a buddhist why would we want to not encourage half of our community 
to go 100% of the path. Mm -hmm. If we yes. encourage all Buddhists, uh, including half of the Buddhist community, <laughs> to go to um, go to completion or to live fully, as you said, the path, everybody benefits. Everybody benefits. Um, so I, but I do want to reiterate this point. It is so important to support the Bhikkhuni Sangha. It's um, it, if we, it's an opportunity to really expand the opportunity for women to practice the path fully. Uh, and they, those opportunities still are not widespread. And if we support uh, nuns like Aya Santusika and others, those opportunities can grow in the future. So I think that's really a really valuable point that I think is worth making. Yeah, thank um, you. I, I do want to just move on now and talk briefly about um, establishing the Karuna Buddhist Vihara in California. Uh, one of the reasons I wanted to interview you was that you are a pioneer, not only in terms of the revival of the Bhikkhuni Sangha, but also in terms of establishing Buddhism in the United States in the current era. At this time, the project you're working on is Karuna Buddhist Vihara, which is located in the Santa Cruz Mountains in Northern California. And our listeners can find a link to the Karuna Buddhist Vihara in the description below. Aya, could you tell us about Karuna Buddhist Vihara? Well, we started out with the vision of being a place where women could come to live life as a bhikkhuni eventually, you know, pick up the training pick up the lifestyle, and also people could come for teachings. So my personal res re resolution, resolve, aditan, if we want to use the, um, a Pali word, um, is, is to awaken, uh, realize nibbana, and to help as many other people along the way as possible. And the underserved group uh, as you've mentioned, is women who want to ordain. There are plenty of opportunities for lay women and lay men and men who want to ordain, and very few for women who want to ordain. So my son, um, who was in the United States at that time, um, helped establish Karuna Buddhist Vihara, and he particularly wanted to name it Karuna because it means compassion. He said, this is definitely the, the sense out of which this place is being established out of compassion for that underserved community, if you will. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, 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 I'm, and I'm afraid that there are many women who would, be, would love to be bhikkhunis who don't even consider it because it's not available. Or in some cultures, in some contexts, they've been told it's not appropriate that there's something wrong with it. And so mm. if that were to change, I think many women would want to take up the robes and we want to give them more options for doing that, as you said. Could you tell us just a little bit about the um, the monastery itself? Uh, like how big is it? Uh, Where's it located? But also um, if you were, if there we have women listening who are interested in either staying for a while or maybe even trying out life as a nun, you know, is there an opportunity there? Or? 
Could you mm-hmm. maybe say a bit more about that? Well, I, I, as I started to say, our intention when we started Karuna Buddhist Fiara was to be in town, kind of really accessible for people. And that's what we did for the first eight years, I guess. And then, um, and it was in a rented property. We were in the heart of Silicon Valley, like a mile from Google headquarters in a really, and really available people would look up, you know, where to find um, a monastery or something and they'd find out we're right around the corner. (laughs) That had its advantages. But it's also been praised by the Buddha to be in the forest. And there was Mm. one person who came to our place from time to time during a retreat. She got the insight or inspiration um, to try to, as she put it, force us to go to the forest. (laughs) And she's decided to do that by granting some money for a forest property. Mm. So that's how this got started. And it brought relief to a number of people who were supporting us because they could see, you know, the property values, the, the cost that it would take for us to really establish a sustainable place in town would have been quite, quite expensive. And here, you know, for $465,000, this property was purchased, which is um, 14 and a half acres of redwood forest with a creek running through it and a cabin. The cabin is pretty rustic, but it's certainly uh, livable. And right now <laughs> I'm sitting in it and the Buddha came with us and the redwood trees are um, gu- guarding us all the time. <laughs> and we are starting to build um, you know, meditation huts, kutis and things and we're, so we're, you know, gradually expanding. We, uh, when early on in Mountain View, uh, another woman joined me and she went through um, the Anagarika phase, the novice, and she's been a bhikkhuni now hmm, for several years. And we've been doing this together, the two of us. Her name is Aya Chitananda. And it's, it's a, a good, we're a good team. And this place really has a tremendous amount of love and kindness in it. So that's the general atmosphere. (laughs) And we're growing slowly because we want to really have a very healthy community. And we have recently ordained uh, another person as an Anagarika. She is a Mexican citizen, and she will be able to join us once we kind of clear all the hurdles with immigration, which we're hoping will be possible. And we have other people that come to stay who are interested. And, and you know, if this is the right fit for them, then there is a place Uh, right now. The way that one can get started on that track is to, first of all, join us online. So it's been amazing with this pandemic because the reach has gone out so much farther and people can get involved without having to, to fly in from somewhere. So we have a couple of weekly programs and some other offerings 
sprinkled throughout the calendar. And if people who are interested in finding out more about us tune in, it's that's an easy way to get a sense of the way we teach. We are very dedicated to the early Buddhist uh, teachings, so the early suttas. And we actually have three criteria for anyone who joins the community. And it's first of all to be um, really very interested in the early Buddhist texts. We don't mix much other stuff in, so it's something mm. you got to really love to be here. <laughs> and the second one is that um, you feel like you can have a good relationship with the residents who are already here. Each of them, it's not just about any one of us. So we want a really harmonious community and um, everybody of course, we in the holy life, you wind up working on the deepest, most difficult things because you have to. But we do that as much as possible in a in a way that is um, not harmful to ourselves or others. So we want to be careful to, you know, work work on things in a good way and know that. Um, having a good relationship with each person here is, is a good start. And then the third thing is that the person needs to be willing and able to change. Because when we're awakened, we won't be the same as we are now. It requires being willing and able to change. If we come into the holy life wanting to dig our heels in and make things accommodate us instead of the other way around. It, it's a tough, it's a tough road. <laughs> so, mm, yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much for that. And I will be putting a link to the Karuna Buddhist Vihara uh, program in the description below. Uh, we're getting close to the end of this spirit story episode, but I don't want to let you off the hook without asking you a curly question. And, um, I'm asking this question as an outsider with my uh, perception, my possibly skewed perception as an Australian Buddhist, because uh, in Australia we've been heavily influenced by our proximity to Asia and the large Asian migrant community here. And as a consequence, we've tended to gravitate towards more orthodox expressions of Buddhism, whereas when it comes to emergent American Buddhism, it does seem to be a colourful mix of just about anything goes, from your vantage point, though, you're in the thick of it. How do you think the Buddhist asana is playing out in the U.S. right now? What stage is it at? Where is it headed? Mm. Well, I would agree with your perception that there is some kind of sense that just about anything goes, which is one of the really important uh, reasons why we're so adherent to the early texts. That's where you mm. really know, is it according to what the Buddha taught or not? Mm. And when people start redefining things like stream entry and, um, you know, what it means to follow your own inner experience around whether something's right or wrong, you know, we can take a pretty clear stand based on what the Buddha taught. 
and uh, and help help people we hope to come back to those very clear definitions that the buddha had and a cohesive complete system so there's there's a lot of variety here in america as you mentioned and we have friends in all the different buddhist traditions and we have a lot of respect for people practicing in different ways and we have some really good conversations, some deep inquiry mm. into, you know, what did the Buddha really mean and what did he do and how can we live more in alignment with that? Where do I think it's headed? Um, I'm not sure, but I think that the truth wins. Um, and I think that as long as there are voices and people who act upon what they are teaching, that is really clearly um, attributable to the Buddha, that's going to hopefully hold a kind of um, center point that mm. other things might revolve around but eventually settle down. And then it's sangsara, you know, it's like, it's always going to be a mess. <laughs> <laughs> never a truer word, never a truer word. Well, I think on that note, uh, I, I really do want to thank you. Uh, it's been an incredible privilege to have you on this baby podcast. Uh, thank you and much matter to you for taking the time to share with us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for the chance. And just before I sign off, I want to remind listeners that there are links below in the description to several of the matters that were discussed in this podcast. Uh, notably, there's a link to where you can donate to Karuna Buddhist Vihara. I've been involved with Buddhism and Buddhist organization for nearly 30 years now, which encompasses the period of the revival. Perhaps we could even say the renaissance of the Buddhist Bhikkhuni Sangha. And I can tell you that because it is so difficult for women to take the higher ordination, every bhikkhuni that I've ever come across is very sincere and dedicated in their practice. And that's certainly true of Aya Santuska. Projects like Karuna Buddhist Vihara have tremendous historical and spiritual significance. If more women have the opportunity to practice this noble or path to completion, our whole community will have more wise and compassionate teachers. So if you can spare a few dollars, please help support Karuna Buddhist Vihara by going to the donation link in the description and help make history. And a reminder, if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Treasure Mountain Podcast using your favourite podcasting app so that uh, you get the latest episodes as they come out. And tell your friends about Treasure Mountain so that they can benefit too. May you all be happy. May you find clarity of mind and peace of heart. See you next time.